0: What prompted you to launch your substack?
1: Um, I have four kids. And as a trial lawyer, um, you know, trying criminal cases on behalf of the United States, I used to practice my opening and closing statements on whoever was about 10 years old. Um, and that's not, by the way, because juries are 10 years old. Juries are really smart. When you get a jury of Americans together in a jury room, they will deliberate and, and, and they will understand the issues. The problem is with the lawyers. We sometimes rely on legalese and you know 50 cent words when a nickel word would do. And because we don't understand the issues well enough ourselves, we fall back on, on this language um, that's that's not plain to people who haven't had a legal education. So one of my goals has been, um, and I have done this rigorously. Probably something that makes my um, law school dean, who hopefully isn't listening, a little bit um, frustrated with me, is that I've been trying to write about the law for the public instead of writing law journal articles for the last few years. I sort of think, as a as a former DOJ person, you have that obligation to help make the the system a little bit less opaque. So I try to write really clearly. I try to eschew legalese. Um, And that's really, Substack is a great vehicle for that. Substack is a test of whether you can explain what's happening in the legal system to regular folks who may not have a legal background, although a bunch of my readers do. And so I constantly, my, my, you know, you'll see this on Substack, right? My readers will leave a lot of comments every time I post. And so I'll know when I've explained things properly, when I need to do a better job, and we have a very sort of an interactive sort of thing going where we can talk about the issues, it really helps me do a better job of explaining what's Mm. happening to people. And increasingly, I think the answer to what ails us in this country is more civic engagement, better public engagement. Um, The silver lining of the Trump era is this increased interest in how stuff works. I promise you that in 25 years as a prosecutor, no one ever stopped me on the street and said, tell me how the grand jury works. And, you know, that actually happens these days. I've been out walking my dog and have been accosted by neighbors who've said, tell me how this works. I think mm. that's fantastic.
0: I found my way to meet you, Joyce. Um, and this is maybe a nice segue, but uh, during covering the covering the Mueller investigation, um, I had what was called the bat signal, um, where I would send out an email to 30, folks like yourself uh, at once, usually after, you know, whatever crisis moment happened uh, during the Mueller investigation. Uh, and there were so many of them looking for insights quickly to understand what's going on. And uh, and you are one of the former prosecutors I remember being introduced to and, and getting that opportunity to learn quite a bit. Um, uh, even
1: We all thought it was an honor to get to do that. I, I want to underscore how to former federal prosecutors, especially U.S. attorneys, it is an ongoing honor for us to get to explain what we did at DOJ to the American public. We all appreciate that so much.
0: Cool to know. Uh, is there a, um, a sense now, do you send out your own bat signal? I'm kind of curious to, to other colleagues, to people who are in the world uh, to get insights. or Are you kind of pulling again from your own repertoire of, of your experiences? I mean, how much engagement do you have across the sort of uh, alumni network of, of former prosecutors?
1: Well, it's a really smart idea. Now that you mentioned that, I think I am going to create a bat signal. You know, former prosecutors talk um, because we're all friends. Many of us are used to working together. So Barb McQuaid and I, you know, Barb is one of my co-hosts on the hashtag sisters-in-law podcast. People confuse us all the time, even though we look nothing alike. Um, But we were colleagues together um, at DOJ in the Obama administration. And so it's very natural, you know, for us to, to chat about often more than once a day. Um, and, and there, you know, it, it's, um, I think what I'm struggling to say here is I always want to test my judgment or my view on an issue. So that might mean speaking with my former Obama colleagues. It might mean speaking with, um, I, I talk a lot with the folks in my old office, you know, we're in Birmingham, Alabama. We were a smart office. There's a lot of insight and institutional knowledge there. I talk with former appellate chiefs and, and other appellate folks at DOJ. Um, we believe that we are the smartest people in the room. Some of them are, not me. Um, they are always good people to talk with. And then there are just, you know, prosecutors, both state and federal across the country who I know, um, retired judges, former judges. Um, I talk a lot about criminal justice issues with people who were in U.S. probation or who were judges. So, yeah, I would say it's a robust network, but I need a bat signal. What a great idea.
0: (laughs) It's a pretty awesome way to quickly find out. um, Yeah, indeed, what what the world is thinking. Um, We were talking before we started here a little bit about Substack and um, uh, the wide variety of, of, of writers that are on there. I wonder if you could talk for a moment about what are you finding uh, now that you live on Substack and write on Substack, but also are a consumer of Substack, what what are your three favorite Substacks that you're reading?
1: Oh, that's so hard and such an unfair question. So here's why I went to Substack. Um, you know that I'm a knitter, or maybe you don't know that I'm a knitter, Darren. In fact, I'm sitting here knitting right now while we're talking. Um, I knit a lot. And um, like all knitters, you learn that you can develop, talk about the bat signal, right? A robust um, group of smart people with different experiences in, in your knitting circles. And so, one of my knitting girlfriends is Eugene Carroll, who writes a fabulous Substack. Eugene Carroll, of course, is the former Elle Advice columnist who, in her book, um, details um, the story of her rape by former President Donald Trump and then gets fired and starts a Substack and now has a case that's going to trial in April a defamation case against Trump. But her Substack is just a rollicking good read. It's one of those things that every time it hits my inbox, I click, I read it. It's always a day brightener. I read a lot of very serious Substacks too. You know, the conversation you and I were having is how Substack, in many ways, has become like a newspaper. Right? It's a newspaper that you pick yourself. You can decide which Substacks you want to subscribe to. So I read Heather Richardson for history. I love her, I've been reading her for a really long time. Um, she has a column this morning that was so good that I printed it out and gave it to my husband because it's both the history of reconstruction and a comparison of that to what Ron DeSantis is doing to education and, and other areas in Florida today, You know, in real time, it's just so brilliantly done. I feel so much better equipped to take on the day and, and I have so much purpose in understanding what's at stake after reading Heather, but I read um, food substacks and get recipes. I read one about clean makeup. Um, I like to read people who talk about writing, and I love to read other people who talk about the law and politics. Robert Hubble, um, you know, I am a, a consumer of reading, and you, you know, um, you can read a lot while you're knitting. People don't always know that that reading and knitting aren't mutually exclusive. And I have just built this sort of crazy new chicken coop in our backyard and included a chair and a desk for myself. And so it's now my guilty pleasure to sit down there with too much coffee in the morning and read Substacks and knit. And it's pretty much my little slice of heaven.
0: Mm -hmm. The ultimate compliment to a writer is when you print out a copy of something and give it to them uh, the old fashioned way. Uh, I was going to ask you about the chicken coop. Uh, That is certainly... um, (laughs) Uh, something that I, I love reading about on your substack. What's what has raising chickens taught you about life?
1: <laughs> um, so I'm going to tell you this story and I'm going to try to not get teary eyed as I tell you this story. Here's why we got chickens. Um, during the pandemic, we um, for a while ended up with all four of our kids at home. The youngest um, was a senior in high school. Our second kid was born with a um, genetic disorder and a primary immune system disorder, which is to say we were pretty worried during the pandemic. Um, The youngest of our four is the only one in our family who's not real nerdy. He's very social, um, has a lot of friends. We never said to him, you know, Ollie, you need to do your senior year of high school from home. We gave him the choice, do whatever you wanna do. And he made the decision that he would protect his big brother and do his senior year of high school from his bedroom and not see his friends until vaccines became available. And, and that was um, something pretty remarkable for a, a young man of that age to do. And we responded as any good parent would do by letting him do anything he wanted. No bedtime, eating in the bedroom. We would hear he and his friends would be playing video games, you know, at two in the morning. And we would hear him talking. We would hear them swearing. He'd be like, this is great. Can we bring you more food, right? We were so impressed by what he did. And early in the pandemic, I think in maybe late March, he said, I'd like to have chickens. So we got chickens. Um, Ollie is now a sophomore in college. And I have 10 chickens sitting in my backyard in a beautiful coop because you know they're really pretty wonderful um i mean they're just wonderful you don't think of chickens as having personality and and there's just something about hanging out with them that's really good for your mental health interestingly so i was just sort of under the weather for about a week and our second kid gets stuck being the guy who goes out at six in the morning to feed the chickens and clean out the coop and a couple of days in, he said, you know, I don't really mind doing it, mom. It's really fun. It's nice to you go out in the morning. It's quiet. There's bird song. It's just really a wonderful thing to get to do. Hmm. Not everybody is like my husband who will sit down there and let the chickens watch. He he watches TikTok with one of our chickens. She gets on his lap and she and it's like crazy. She watches them. Um, but they've been really, really great. And, and I know now I sound like the crazy chicken lady, and, and maybe I am, but they're lovely. And it's always good to be able to have eggs for your neighbors
0: absolutely thanks for sharing that story let me ask you um i ask every guest this question i'm just curious on a scale of one to ten uh in terms of in the name of the show i should add is the, the love journalism show um and i've gotten a lot of different uh numbers and responses here but on a scale of one to ten ten being you're absolutely in love with uh journalism and ready to to run off and elope and one being you're ready for uh, a divorce and running far away but where would you say you are in terms of your views on on american journalism right now and the state of it uh and and how would you rank it and why
1: it's a loaded question right i am a 10 on good journalism on good journalism with journalistic journalistic ethics and journalistic standards um it's tough to be upbeat about the state of journalism in America with the loss of local newspapers. It's something that I feel acutely. We used to have two dailies in Birmingham. We now have something online called AL.com with some great writers, but they don't have the resources to do, for instance, the investigative journalism that I relied on as a prosecutor, right? Often the journalists were ahead of us. Um, Journalism really is a foundational democratic institution, and we suffer without it. That's why I think Substack is a great thing and, and something that I'm looking forward to that I think other communities have. We don't necessarily have it yet in Alabama, is a robust local journalistic um, posture mm. on Substack. Mm. So I'm that to say I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic, I'm worried about what we've lost. The News that's coming to light in the Dominion Voting Machines case about what Fox News hosts were willing to do, this notion that they willingly, knowingly told their viewers things that they knew weren't true uh, uh, about perpetrating Trump's big lie because they were concerned about how much money they were, were making. You know, that's, that's a cautionary tale, and I get that that's cable TV, um, but there should be some way that at least the profession holds people accountable. And that's elusive right now. I don't know where that comes from or or how that happens.